0: Okay, this is Billy Rainford from Direct Motocross. We've got an interesting one for you today. Uh, We have got the inventor of the Liat Brace, Dr. Chris Liat from South Africa. On the phone, we had a nice little conversation to talk about uh, the origins of the company and things like that. From the Liat website, the Liat story began in 2001 when Dr. Chris Liat witnessed the death of a fellow motorcycle rider the weekend after his son Matthew began riding. Dr. Liat began research and development of a device almost immediately, driven by a passion to protect not only his son, but all riders from the effects of catastrophic neck injuries. His first patents were filed in 2003. The revolutionary Liat brace was developed in Cape Town, South Africa, and tested by BMW engineers at their facility in Munich, Germany, with first production units sold in late 2006. Well, we have him on the phone to talk about the uh, company's history and where he sees the sport and safety heading in the future. Uh, But, of course, we uh, start off with some lighter topics, uh, as usual. So here, sit back now and listen to our interview with Dr. Chris Liat, all the way from South Africa. All right, hello. We've got, uh, this is Dr. Chris Liat, all the way from South Africa, talking with us. Uh, Am I calling you Dr? Am I calling you Chris? Dr. Liat? what What would you like us to call you?
1: I know, and uh, doc, uh doctors are uh, a bit formal i think so so chris suits me just fine thank you <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay that's great uh i just want to say for for starters thank you very much for uh taking the time to talk with us all the way here in canada um yeah i mean it's a it's it's there are a lot of interesting people in our sport and in pro sports but not everyone can say they invented something that is uh such a drastic change and such a, an improvement like you have i mean uh for starters, thank you very much for doing that. I mean, we're going to get into the history of the Liat Brace, but uh, yeah, man, um, yeah, you must be pretty proud.
1: Um, uh, yeah, proud and humbled, um, you know, by the testimonials and uh, and and the test results, be they uh, clinical or, or real life or, or lab. Um, but I think it's really the testimonials that, um, you know, really get, get your your arm your hair arm standing up on end and or rather your arm hair standing up on end and um and uh, you know still feels real to this day um uh, yeah, i think last week i had a significant testimonial that really sort of hit home and um and i've been doing this for a while now so it's been
0: quite a journey now i'm guessing are you talking about marvin muscan correct right yeah that was uh that was pretty good cool. that
1: I know well and uh you know I've met on, on numerous occasions and and uh yeah and there was a significant uh, significant fall um and uh thankfully he's okay
0: Yeah exactly No, it, uh, I mean obviously he showed the what the brace did and where it was bent and where it was compromised and I mean it did exactly what it was supposed to do it looks like correct Correct Yeah that's that's amazing so hey well let me let me back it up here and talk a little bit about you away from the uh away from the Liat-type stuff, well, that's your name, I guess we can't really get away from it, but um, (laughs) how are things in South Africa these days? Where actually are you right now?
1: So um, I I live in Stellenbosch, which is um, uh, a a town just outside of Cape Town. It's about uh, an hour's travel by road from Cape Town Central. Okay. Um, And it's in a beautiful wine-growing region of South Africa uh, with lots of... um, Lots of mountains and uh, mountain biking and just beautiful scenery. So, very fortunate to live here. I guess while the world's going mad and people are in lockdown, um, this is a good place to be. Uh, the weather is absolutely fantastic. It's 35 degrees Celsius today, no wind, clear skies. Um, yeah, so picture perfect, really. Geez,
0: 35 is picture perfect. That sounds a little warm. That's Africa <laughs> hot. <laughs> God. <laughs> hey hey so what's uh, what is the climate like there i mean obviously on your southern hemisphere so you guys are heading into your winter at uh, 35 doesn't sound like winter though
1: it doesn't no so um we we will be um heading into autumn um we have four distinct seasons in the year um and uh here in Stellenbosch, we get to 35 maybe 40 degrees celsius in summer and in winter it'll be on on a cold day you know it'll be below 10 um and on a very odd occasion to get to zero mm-hmm. so uh we don't have winters like you do uh, but then i guess you don't have summers like we do
0: no we do we get uh you know we'll hit the odd 35 degree day and we get a lot of humidity here but of course we're just coming out of our we had we had literally a foot and a half of snow on the ground uh two weeks ago here so it's all gone now <laughs> a little hey I think uh, most of us here in Canada, for sure, we have uh, two guys that we really got, got to know, uh, Liam O'Farrell and Karen Fitzgerald. Now, are you familiar with those guys?
1: I am. I, am, I'm, I must admit to, uh, to not knowing them well, but I've obviously the, the names are, uh, are uh, familiar and, uh, and, and heard, uh, spoken about in our business.
0: Right, well, two super, super nice guys, super genuine guys, and, and people, it's kind of funny, I mean, people always say, up here in Canada, like, Australian more than South African, of course, but uh, any ski resort you go to, you're just tripping over Australians, so whenever I bump into a, uh, an Australian, I ask them, what part of Whistler are they from?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I must say, um, there's a fair percentage of my my medical graduation class that uh, that's working in Canada.
0: Okay, all right. So would you say uh, Liam and Karim are pretty fair examples of uh, South Africans? I mean, people always say, uh, you know, when you see someone here, oh, the Australians are so nice. South Africans are so nice. Well, yeah, you're only seeing ones that are on holidays. That's why they're so nice.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, when when I worked overseas, the one thing that uh, was spoken about is sort of South Africans' work ethic. Uh, we're generally fun-loving. Um, on the weekend, we you know we like to have a barbecue and uh, knock back a few beers. We love outdoor <laughs> activities, and uh, we're generally speaking uh, hard-working people. So um, I think we, that, that's why we're fairly well liked. Um, I actually did my internship in the UK, and in the hospital I was working in in the United Kingdom, uh, five out of about the ten uh, interns at that stage were South Africans, and. Uh, and I think the hospital next door had something like uh, eleven out of twelve were South Africans, just oh. because of their work. So, so yes, I think probably good examples.
0: <laughs> That's great. Hey, what's what's uh, what's the bigger insult? Being mistaken for an Australian or a New Zealander?
1: Uh, can I can I um, can I not answer that question <laughs> yeah, on the grounds course. that I, I might get beaten up by the other one? <laughs> um, uh, you know I think um, there are an awful lot of South Africans in New Zealand um I think more so than Australia um, I don't think we can match the south africans the the Australian party and drinking attitude quite mm-hmm. so I guess we're probably closer to New Zealanders than uh, Australians.
0: Okay, I like asking a new Zealander hey, what part of uh, what part of Tasmania are you from
1: <laughs> <laughs> you like stirring the pot Billy.
0: I do. I do like stirring the pods. Hang on. Let me, let me get my bigger spoon here. See what I've got here. I, Oh yeah. Karim. I mean, are things safe there? I mean, I, told me some of the most bizarre and interesting stories of, of, of stuff going on there in the streets in South Africa. Is it, uh, you guys good down there?
1: You know, I think like, like most countries, obviously South Africa does have a bad reputation. We've got a very high unemployment rate. Um, and that, uh, obviously leads to crime and, a lot of petty crime, but also, unfortunately, some violent crime and uh, carjackings and the like. Um, but, you know, if you, if you uh, like most cities, I mean, there are parts of L.A., there are parts of London that you wouldn't go to after hours. And I think you just, if you've got to have your wits about you. Unfortunately, I think if you're a tourist and you enter the country with sort of a blasé attitude, um, you know, you, you may be targeted. Uh, but for us, uh, I think you know, just about all of us have been burgled or something's happened to us. Um, in fact, uh, you know that's sort of commonplace. It's it's. Uh, I, in fact, I, I would struggle to think of somebody who hasn't, uh, you know, been been involved in, uh, as a uh, um, as a victim of crime. But you know, if you use your wits about you and you are South African, um, you know how to avoid the risk. I agree. Um so I feel very safe. My children live here. You know, my wife is here and we, we all, we, we're out and about all the time and feel very safe.
0: All right. Actually, Emily, my better half, she, uh, her dad was just down in South Africa last, uh, well, before the pandemic and everything, but he said it was his favorite place and they travel all the time. He said it was his favorite country to visit. He wants to go back. So, I mean, there's,
1: I'm always amazed when I travel, obviously, uh, COVID has really thrown a spending in the works, but, uh, when I when I get back to South Africa, just that the feeling uh, of of openness and and possibilities and really good quality of life. We have an amazing quality of life. We have really good weather, big open spaces, not overly regulated. Um, it's, it really is a great place to live.
0: Oh, that's great. And I uh, don't wait. Hey, I heard you invented some protective gear. We'll, we'll but we'll get to that. <laughs> um, what I think it's funny that you came out uh, speaking with Zoe here. The uh, the Canadian Liat person here. She's doing a great job, by the way. Um, she was talking about the new tiger gear that you guys came out with. And a little-known fact to people from where I am, there are no tigers in Africa.
1: You're, you're absolutely right. The only tigers in Africa are ones that are uh, have been imported for uh, you know for, for uh, not into reserves, but into sanctuaries and things. Uh, but no, South Africa doesn't have tigers. We've got cheetah and leopards, but not, no tigers.
0: See, that's interesting. So I guess that's why lion, the t- king of the jungle, because you don't have any tigers there. Ab- absolutely. <laughs> One of the reasons. <laughs> See, I told you this would told you this would go all over the place. But uh, I'm well, I'm wondering uh, when you were growing up as a kid, and what other sports did you? Are you a surfer? I mean, uh, I'm a surfer, and I always all I think about of South Africa are great white sharks, and that kind of freaks me out.
1: <laughs> yeah and unfortunately the, the, the great white shark I say unfortunately but the great white shark in, uh, in and around Cape Town has dwindled dramatically um, over time uh, you know they feed, feed on seals uh, mainly and the seal population has uh, decreased uh, and the orca population have increased and they, um, they target mm-hmm. uh, great whites um, but no I'm not a surfer I'm, I've done numerous sports uh, I, I, I dive I kite surf, oh. um, but I don't surf uh, per se. Um, I'm mountain biking, and I spent uh, well most of my adolescence and early early adulthood uh, riding riding motorcycles. So um, right. I put the aviate. Uh, I fly helicopters and airplanes. Mm. Um, yeah, a long list of stuff.
0: Oh, okay, cool. Because here uh, here in North America, I would say, well, here's what we know about South Africa: bungee jumping. Sharks, <laughs> yeah. lions, Sharks. diamond mines, uh, maybe the largest crater in the world happens to be there, and uh, yes. wine. We drink uh, a lot of uh, yeah. South African wine. <laughs> I would have started with wine, but uh, you know, each their own. <laughs> Another little known fact, did you know that the uh, first ever uh, pool vacuum was invented in South Africa in 1974?
1: Absolutely, the Creepy corny, and there are there a are nice. few good examples. Like... Uh, Crestic or Tic Tac, uh, the Creepy Crawly. <laughs> uh, Elon Musk is from South Africa. Uh, there, there was a neck brace invented here. There, there are quite a few in- inventions that are South African.
0: Nice. So if you're just tuning in, we are talking with Dr. Chris Liat, and there is a motocross connection here that we'll get to eventually, but uh, I just like to kind of have some fun here talking about that. Hey, I know there are also, I think there's like 11 languages there. Do you, what, uh, what languages do you speak?
1: Uh, English, Afrikaans, and basic Xhosa. So yes, 11 official languages. There are more. Um, okay. So can you imagine the government having to translate uh, documentation into 11 official languages?
0: Yeah, that's pretty crazy. I mean, we have two here, and that's, uh, well, maybe three, I guess, but uh, that's, that's tough enough, that's for sure. Hey, okay, one more, one more silly question. Uh, soccer, sorry, football, cricket or rugby? What's your, what's your, uh, what's your poison?
1: Um, well, I played uh, both cricket and, and rugby in, in school. I, I like watching uh, national and international level uh, cricket and rugby. Um, I guess I choose the, uh, choose uh, rugby for winter and cricket for summer, really. okay. okay. Football's not really my cup of tea.
0: Which, oh, it isn't, no?
1: No, although I played football at school, but uh, it's um, not something that I actively watch.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of the same way. I played just about every sport you can think of. and football, soccer is just not one that I enjoy, but even to play, I don't enjoy it. <laughs> okay. Well, we've run out of time. I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's move over. So we're going over to the, uh, the Liat brace is where things started. I found it interesting. I mean, I've been watching those, uh, those video series and obviously, I mean, they've answered just about every question I could even think about asking. That's why I had to go on that little tangent there for sure. But, uh, those videos—are we going to have some more? They're like little ten-minute videos there. On if you go on the Liat YouTube page, you can kind of get all the history on things. But uh, do we have more coming? Absolutely.
1: I think we're on uh, season ten, episode nine that we're filming currently. Oh jeez. I'm, I'm putting your leg. Um, <laughs> but yes, um, no, there will be others coming.
0: <laughs> okay. So I know. Let's 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 get to the uh, get to the brace here. Obviously, you've had this answered this question like a million times, but I guess I I kind of have to ask it. Um, backing up. Let's let's go back to I mean obviously if you've watched the video you know the answer to this but uh, maybe people haven't but so the initial thing of why you got into this the neck brace thing in the first place I mean it's a tragic but uh, interesting story.
1: Um, it it is and uh, you know like um, a, a lot of products that don't the the origin isn't. Um, isn't sort of a, a, a business case. It's, a, it's something that evolves over time out of need. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons for its success. Uh, you know, I was, my, my young son, who was four at the time, uh, rode a little P 50 for the first time two weeks before this tragic accident. Uh, and he went herring around a, a farm and huge smiles on his face. And, uh, you know, having, having grown up riding motorcycles myself. You know, it was sort of a natural progression for him to also want to ride motorcycles. I mean, he'd see me uh, around and we had a number of them in, in and around the house. Um, and that, but that was really significant, that little ride of his two weeks before the accident, because it, it, it really made the consequence of, of the accident real for me. Um, and because it was real for me, um, it, it sort of changed the course of my life. And I, and I believe to this day it was because of my passion for motorcycles, uh, Matthew, my son's um, early interest in motorcycles, and my the fact that I was uh, a, a neurosurgical resident at the time uh, of the tragedy, that it, it, it sort of took somebody with that life experience to put the pieces together. Um, and, and really, right in the beginning, I was just looking to go to the market and buy something. And, of course, I couldn't find anything. So what trans, transpired is I was at a, an, an off-road enduro motorcycle event uh, about two hours out of Cape Town. And uh, my son was with me. I was post-call, so I wasn't riding. I used to ride a, a bit of enduro to keep fit. And... Um, And I was sitting in the parking lot talking to a paramedic who I used to see um, in the trauma unit at the hospital I was working at from time to time. Um, And a rider came down the mountain and said to the paramedic, you know, please come and help uh, a a rider who's fallen off and he's he's not looking in a good way. So the paramedic said to me, well, you know, would you mind coming with and assisting? So myself and my son Matthew jumped into the the off-road ambulance and, and off we went. And there I found Alan Selby, who was lying on the top of a a hill, or the crest of a hill, and what appeared to be a relatively low-speed fall over the Hanna Bars. Um, And unfortunately, he wasn't breathing and no detectable pulse. Mm. Uh, And we tried everything we could to resuscitate him. Uh, We had all the equipment with us, but unfortunately, he didn't survive. Uh, And my thinking at that uh, time was that he had um, succumbed from a neck injury. Uh, later, uh, after we had unfortunately had to discuss this with his wife and his young children, um, I I got some feedback from the autopsy. And in fact, he had broken his neck in two places. And I just said to myself, that's it. I, I, I'm i going to think seriously about my riding, but there's no way I'm allowing my son to ride and put him in harm's way uh, like that. I'm going to find a solution. And of course, I couldn't find a solution, and that's what led to the development of the of the neck brace.
0: Okay, and that's man. Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, it's amazing that you take one thing from yeah you know, and able to turn it into what you have, like to actually find a solution, as opposed to as opposed to leaving the sport, which is nice that you didn't. <laughs> that wasn't your choice. It's nice that you actually did something to advance the sport. I also found it interesting that you you wouldn't have even been in uh, maybe anyway. Maybe it, from what I saw in the video that. You weren't even heading into medicine; it just happened to be that was your stay in your in the military service that you have to do that kind of thing. So, is that what would you be doing if you weren't doing uh, medicine?
1: <laughs> absolutely, I, I must admit, when I left school, I had absolutely no idea what I what I <laughs> wanted to do to do with my life. Um, I guess if I hadn't, uh, I mean, as you mentioned, we we had to do two years of national service. Um, and it was during my national service that after doing infantry basics, uh, we, we uh, I, you, know, you, you, you called up to um, a certain uh, division and that's where the, you're placed and it's difficult to change that. So I, I, I just randomly was called up to the medics. So we did an infantry basics and then we did an operational medics um, training course afterwards. And essentially we worked as paramedics, um, with uh, the front line of, of, uh, of the infantry battalions, or uh, in my case, I was subconded to the Navy, so I was on the ships. Hmm. Um, and uh, as a medic uh, in the Navy, I was very fortunate to meet um, like-minded national servicemen doctors, so young doctors who had finished medicine and were also having to do their national service. Um, and it was a really great bunch of guys I spent a lot of time in theater with them and I just decided that this is what I wanted to do with my life and and uh, so so studied medicine as a result of my national service which is uh, also um, an unusual I think outcome from from having to go to the army for two years yeah. um, I guess if I hadn't done medicine I probably would have done something in the engineering uh, field oh,
0: okay okay well that, that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> Now, what, I'm also curious, too, like, I mean, obviously, you show the first uh, iterations there, the first ideas you had for the brace and everything. Uh, what? How long did it take, like, from this idea and the concept to getting to where you could put it on the market and stuff? And I'm also curious, who the heck was putting on these uh, original ideas?
1: <laughs> so, it took about four years, which is, for a new product, actually, quite a short period of time uh, to go from uh, from the concept to, to actually being able to ride with... or. or uh, you know, a, a sort of, I'll, I'll use it. I use the term likely a um, a, a, um, a brace that could be marketed and sold, and and that you you know it was in a condition to be purchased. Um, because, and I'm I'm sounding a bit obtuse here because uh, there were so many different iterations along the way, and so many people who were really interested in the product that they just wanted to buy it uh, and use it, uh, mm. even if it wasn't quite quite uh, quite ready for for consumption. Um, so it, it was a, an, an interesting uh, journey. And um, the, the theory for the base really started as an academic one rather than a, than a practical example. So I, I looked at the research uh, and the epidemiology of neck injuries, particularly in uh, two-wheel sports, and understood what the major injury vectors were and how people were breaking their necks. Uh, and so the concept really is of an alternative load path uh, technology where you can take energy that would have gone down the neck and, and place it somewhere else. Uh, and you don't necessarily need to place all the energy uh, somewhere else. You just need to reduce uh, the amount of force traveling through your neck so that you don't reach the threshold for what, for, for an injury. So to give you an example, uh, it may take uh, 4,800 newtons of um, Axial loading, so 480 kilograms, for example, uh, loading on your neck to cause a fracture. uh, But um, if you have a neck brace in place um, and you can remove 20% of that force, which is um, often what we see in in different accident scenarios, um, the likelihood of getting to that 4,800 Newton threshold uh, is diminished considerably. And so the severity and the and the number of injuries is, is thereby reduced. So I often think of a, a neck brace as a self-aligning head restraint for a car. So, you know, with cars now, they have adaptive seat belts, they have a headrest that aligns to your head, uh, and an airbag that deploys. So as the airbag deploys, uh, you don't get um, the head excursion backwards over the seat because you've got a, a headrest in position. And that headrest is always there. Um, and so that was really the theory, is to put something around your neck that was didn't need to be deployed. It was there when it was required. And it created an alternative load path to load the neck. So really what I needed to do is mirror the underside of a helmet so that the load could be transferred from the helmet to the neck brace. And do it in such a way that it would stay in place. And uh, it would be comfortable enough to wear. Um, the first neck brace was modeled on my father, and that was really foam, plastic, and, and uh, insulation tape. The second one I modeled on my wife um, using Bondo or you know uh, potty that you use for, uh, for body filling off cars um, to try and create uh, a shape. Um, obviously, now these days we have mannequins, and now we even have uh, you know 3D models in, in, in the in the computer, where it allows us to fit devices um, much easier. But in back in that day, in that uh, period of the development's history, it was really about um, you know using your hands and building a prototype. And only once uh, we had something that was wearable, uh, and uh, lots of as uh, you know friends and family who wanted to to use it. We had, unfortunately, a a, a spate of neck injuries around that time in South Africa. So, you know, a lot of people were trying, uh, were were keen to to try it, and and really, it it, a lot of the time and energy was spent on trying to make it wearable because the theory uh, could be proven in a lab. In other words, can an alternative load path be created, and can you unload the neck uh, using dummies and other test methodologies? But really, could you make it wearable? So you know, through the numerous iterations and numerous uh, friends, family, and the later athletes, uh, you know, we arrived at uh, what, what looks like the current neck brace.
0: Nice. And it's interesting because I guess obviously, I mean, there's just the only way you're going to be able to do it. You do lab testing and everything like that. And then you put it on someone because uh, I have a Liat uh, neck brace that I wore last year. And of course, I'll wear it again this spring here as we get going. But uh, the only thing I can do as a tester is tell you whether or not, it bothers me when I wear it, right? Just as long as I know when it's on me that it, in this, you know, in the tests it does what it's supposed to do, all I can really do is say, cause I'm not going to go put my head into a rock or a tree. <laughs> so all I can do is exactly. say, yeah, I didn't even notice it when I was wearing it. You know what I mean?
1: Correct. So, uh, you know, so the, the, the average rider or test rider or athlete will, will comment as you've, uh, as you've uh, mentioned is, can I ride with it? Is it comfortable for me to ride in? And uh, you know, does it obscure, uh, my vision or the way I ride or this has changed fa- changed the way I'm riding. But for the rest, the testing has to be done elsewhere. Um, you know, just like uh, all the original testing was done um, with, with uh, airbags or seat seatbelts. Uh, you can't strap a, a real live person into a sled, although <laughs> some people have uh, done that um, in their own labs uh, and, and measure the output. You really need to have something instrumented and, uh, what you're going to try and achieve is uh, both consistency in the results so that you are comparing apples with apples, so when you test a non-braced versus braced version that you are getting reliable data, um, and you have got to ensure that the, the output is, is realistic. So, you know, we, we started using Hybrid 3 crash test dummies, but they have limitations. They were originally designed for automobile impact testing, um, and they have a neck which is, in some instances, quite biofidelic, but in other instances isn't. And uh, we've we've ended up using something called a motorcycle anthropomorphic uh, neck in our dummy. There are only a few in the world, but it, it's more biofidelic and allows us to pre-position the head in different uh, positions prior to impact. Um, but testing has really evolved since that time again, although... When we launch a new brace, we always test it against the results we had with the first brace. Um, and I think that's a, a really important thing to do. Um, the, you know, the new advancements uh, really are uh, around mathematical uh, modeling. Uh, and that's really encouraging because if you can import um, a CAD design of the brace into, uh, into the model and use the model to test and once again validate it with or without a neck brace, Um, you can make small incremental changes to the neck brace and really understand what impact it's going to have on the head uh, and the the neck. Um, So we've worked with numerous academic institutions around the world, Um, for example, Strasbourg University with what we call a dynamic finite element analysis model. Um, And there essentially uh, what we've done is broken the brace and the human skull, bridging veins, CSF, brain matter, spinal cord, bones, ligaments, all have been given material properties and validated over lots of tests, so from cadaver studies to real-life uh, studies to uh, previous mathematical models, and they use all this data to try and build a, a model that is very realistic and behaves the way it should do. And in this kind of model, uh, essentially they 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 break both the brace and the body parts into small blocks, for example, one millimeter by one meter blocks, and then join them together again. And in that joint, or the boundary conditions of those two blocks, uh, give it its its uh, material. So it allows you to uh, ascertain the stress and the strain on the brain, uh, and really gives you fascinating results. Um, and it's, uh, it's the basis of, of ongoing research is to be able to look at not only what happens to the, the neck um, in a neck-loading uh, impact, but also what happens to the brain. So, I mean, I can talk for hours about, you know, how we've gone about testing the brace. Suffice to say that if you're going to put a, a neck brace on your child, um, you'd better be very sure uh, of what you are, uh, of, of, of what you're saying and what you're testing. Um, and, of course, uh Neck brace, uh, since since uh, I developed the neck brace, um, there hasn't really been any standards against which you can test. Um, so, all the standards that we've developed over time, you know, in conjunction with BMW and KTM and BMW's lab and other labs and academic institutions, um, has allowed us to, to develop a standard, an in house standard that we're comfortable with. Um, and hence the reason. For publishing our white papers uh but because there's no international standard um you've got to be very sure uh to ask yourself the right questions particularly when you know that product can end up in your child
0: right right for sure for sure okay well yeah that's that's interesting like yeah okay well because yeah in the real world uh, as 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 riders and things like that we want to know that the the testing has been done but that we don't feel like we're wearing a big bulky thing on our head next, and that's uh and that's what uh, what geez, that's what I've noticed anyway. But um, now I, now back back in the, the beginning, maybe just kind of the would you call these kind of maybe the two biggest things that happened for you, like the the David Bailey uh, testimonial when he came out and said that people need to be wearing these things, and then that Great Lakes study just uh, more recently kind of thing. What to, what that must how could you keep up with? I mean I saw in the video too, and I, I mean we've heard it before, but when David Bailey made that, uh, what did you guys do to catch up with that sudden demand?
1: Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a really simple answer. We didn't sleep for nine months. <laughs>
0: um,
1: so of course, we didn't know that David was going to uh, to make that uh, video. I, I'd heard his name, but I, I didn't I didn't know him personally. Had absolutely no communication with him. Um, and 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 uh, after my wife Jackie um, said, you know, I think there's something wrong with PayPal.
0: Um, <laughs> right.
1: We began to uh, to understand that something. Uh, had changed, um, and and, and learned uh, you know, a short while later that it was David's uh, plea to to the riding community to put on the brace and, and uh, save themselves from um, from injuries like his. Although he's a he's a paraplegic from a from a mid thoracic injury, um, obviously the thesis for the brace is try and prevent it as high up as possible. Um, and um, yeah, I mean. David's a great guy. I've spoken to him uh, numerous times over the years. Um, you know, I didn't want to be—I uh, didn't want to be seen as somebody who ha- had got an advocate like David and and uh, made him uh, talk about the brace uh, when he wasn't a believer. So, because it came from him and came from his heart, I think you know it—it it really uh, made an impact on people.
0: Right. Yeah, for sure. Hey, speaking of David uh, and, and, and his break, the thoracic kind of thing. What's, I mean, just to kind of talk a little bit about this, I, or are you putting in I mean, obviously the neck braces for uh, cervical type stuff, which can lead to immediate death kind of thing. But to, as far as lower back, uh, protection and kind of things, I know there are some types of things, but have, have, what, have you guys got something in the burner there or what, uh, what can people do for that?
1: So, you know, the spine is incredibly complex. Well, you know, most uh, body regions um, are are hugely complex. And in biomechanics, you've got to be very careful if you change one dynamic that you're not changing another. So, you know, uh, thoracic injuries um, can occur either from a fall directly on the head. Remember that often with neck injuries and thoracic injuries, the loading is the weight of your body on your head that's loading your, your spine. So it's, it's actually the weight of your torso and your legs and your pelvis and your abdomen that are loading uh, your spine. Um, and uh, that's with a fall on your head, which is what we typically see in, in uh, motorcycle accidents. Uh, the other type is that you, you impact it from something. Um, so you know if a motorcycle hits you on your back or if you're unfortunate to land uh, on an obstacle where there's a bending moment or a torque on your spine, um, that's another big uh, category for for back injury. So the fact that uh, that there are back protectors that are now offering uh, um, a demonstrable level of protection, and I, and I use that word because uh, I, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but what we've tried to do is to popularize the the European standards um, in North America because we believe it's um, some of the standards are are well thought out. Um, and uh, measure um, uh, the right sort of accident dynamics and in injury thresholds uh, and look at what a product would do to reduce uh, the severity of those type of traumas. Um, so we try to popularize, uh, you know, CE being used in um, in, in a lot of our uh, protectors, and I think it's starting to be adopted in American people understanding what CE level, levels mean. Uh, but in the instance of a back protector... You know, in terms of direct uh, impact to the back, uh, a good quality CE-approved back protector is certainly going to make a difference if you're impacted from the back. Um, If you land on your coccyx, uh, so in other words, uh, you land uh, on your backside after falling, uh, then you'll have loading in the opposite direction up your spine, and there's very little that can be done to mitigate that. Mm. Um, Together with uh, reducing neck loads by putting a neck brace on somebody and and removing, for example, 20% of the force, um, you are reducing thoracic spine forces at the same time because the transmission of force from C7 to T1 is less with a neck brace on than without a neck brace, um, and therefore less force is going down the spine. So indirectly, the neck brace is protecting your thoracic spine. However, unfortunately, one of the biggest causes of mid-thoracic and C, uh, you know, that C three, C four is the most common neck injury region, but T seven is the most common, uh, single most common vertebral level in a in a spinal injury, a thoracic spinal injury, and that commonly occurs with a fall in your head before your neck even moves. Oh. so it's an axial loading force, and it's a force that goes directly down your spine, and it occurs. Uh, in a very short space of time, um, before the neck brace becomes uh, operational, um, and that's why some of these thoracic spine injuries is at this point in time are still um, difficult to to prevent.
0: Wow. Okay, that's interesting. Now, now we mentioned, you know, obviously people you've seen people land on their butts, kind of thing, and that can cause troubles. So how close? How? I mean, this is kind. Of, maybe this isn't even uh, something that's being thought of. But how close are we to an overall you know, get ejected, boom, a, a balloon opens up or a ball, you know what I mean? Like, is that any of this? I mean, obviously, we're talking motocross kind of thing here. It's just so difficult to put so much stuff on in a 30-degree day and still be able to actually stay, uh, stay upright on a, bicycle, a motorcycle without uh, passing out. But uh, are we moving towards anything like that that you can see?
1: Uh, so I think it's a very good question. And, you know, if you want to see the future of technology, watch a sci-fi movie. Right. Uh, because the things that complete, uh, seem to be completely uh, out of the realm of reality in a sci-fi movie often become uh, become reality: flying cars and you know trips to Mars and, and <laughs> other things. So, so um, yeah, I think your question is not uh, an unreasonable one. Um, you know, I think people have been grappling with this for a while, and and I think you know the advent of uh, worn airbags. So. Uh, uh, body jackets or airbag vests or airbag jackets um are, are a way of of trying to resolve uh, these questions is can we can we cut uh, you know cocoon the rider after he's fallen in in something that is going to mitigate not just one type of injury but you know a whole host of injuries and, and the problem really gets down to a, a few dynamics one is how do you recognize an event. So an airbag typically deploys, an airbag vest typically deploys at over 25 kilometers an hour. So if somebody lands on top of you on a jump, you have no protection. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can land very slowly, uh, you know, off, off uh, a motorcycle and still have a significant injury. Right. I know somebody who broke his, uh, his cervical spine in first gear in the parking lot. He, his goggles slipped off his hand. He reached down to get them, fell on his head. Um, at less than walking speed and end up with a, an, a neck injury. so um, the, 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 the trick is when to trigger a device. Um, and that you know is, is, a, is a question that I, I'm sure is being uh, worked on around the world, as we know with the, if you look at Motor GP and you use the airbags that are being in use in in MotoGP now for a while, and the algorithms that determine when it isn't isn't deployed are getting better and better. But they're still not foolproof. Um, They either deploy at the wrong time, uh, uh, when you slap the tank in victory and the airbag deploys (laughs) while you're doing 300 kilometers an hour down the straight, or um, once it's deployed, can it be redeployed? So typically in in, uh, superbike or MotoGP racing, you only require one deployment. But the Dakar this year insisted on air vests. And uh, one of our sponsored riders had to take his neck brace off. I actually wrote a letter to ASO and to the FIM saying, I think this is a mistake. Riders are, uh, in our experience, in the Dakar, breaking their necks sometimes without even leaving the motorcycle. So they, they hit camel grass, and uh, their head impacts the instrument cluster and break their necks without even falling off the motorbike. Oh, wow. And and uh it's, uh, it was two days after uh, after the two or three days after that uh, event began, and one of our riders broke his neck uh, because he he had to take the neck brace uh, off. Now, oh, no. you know this this is one of the problems with new technology, and uh, you know you can you can say the same about the neck braces. How are you sure it's going to work? Um, and now, uh, obviously, we did a lot of thinking about this and, and uh, had a lot of outside opinion, outside testing. Uh, and and, uh, really applied our minds to it. Um, But I think people are now looking for different solutions. Um, And and an airbag is a really compelling one because it it deploys and then you have a whole lot of protection. Um, But does it deploy at the right time? What happens if it doesn't? What happens if it deploys at the wrong time? Once it has deployed, um, and if you're doing the Dakar, uh, you know, one of these long stages, uh, and your your airbag vest deploys once or twice because you fall off five times during the event. You know then you may have protection the first two times and then no protection thereafter. So I think it's it's um, it's a work in progress. Um, I think there are a lot of challenges with uh, being able to cocoon somebody, um, but I think there is also work being done in the background uh, on this type of subject. and and uh you know hopefully there are better products and and uh, innovation continues because that's what uh what what our sport needs i mean you know motorcycles innovate they go faster protection needs to innovate as well
0: right right for sure for sure now i'm also curious too i mean it's there's obviously uh legalities involved and uh in where would you see i mean obviously you have to wear a helmet you have to have boots where would you like to see mandatory safety gear i mean I know MXGP has made some changes recently in the past couple of years of what they're making, you know, enforcing for riders to be wearing, but where would you like to see it go in the future? I mean, how, how much can you force a rider to wear?
1: I think that's a very good question, and I think that's one that is not often well answered by uh, the homologating authorities. So, you know, in medicine we, we have something called an outcomes-based approach, where we look at the past and what happens and make a judgment call based on that. Um, I think the collection of data is is uh, probably the most important uh, first step to ensure that with correct data, we can draw correct uh, conclusions. So as you've mentioned, uh, you know, MXGP now requires risk protection, a uh, chest guard in terms of risk protection. I mean, a 450 throwing stones up at the rider behind them can be uh, a significant event, um, and so there is some progress. But if you consider that you have to wear gloves, goggles, helmets, boots, uh, and now a roost guard, um, and you look at the the study you mentioned earlier, the EMS Action Sports Study, uh, and you look at the uh, the results in terms of the neck brace uh, for for neck protection, for clavicle injury protection. Uh, and I'm busy doing uh, work on brain injury uh, uh, protection using the device. And there's some very compelling results to say that your brain's better off with a neck brace on than no neck brace. Um, these sort of things, are, I would hope that the homologation agencies we start looking at uh, and actually um, you know, look at uh, legislating and homologating safety products based on uh, the efficacy and the type of injuries that we are seeing. Um, and I think, unfortunately, we're still quite far away with the data collection or the data is often not published. Um, I think authorities are often a little bit concerned about publishing data on injuries, uh, as it may lead to uh, you know, uh, lawsuits or it may lead to uh, perception that motorcycling is even more dangerous than we think it is. Um, so I think there's a huge amount of work to do in that regard. Unfortunately, I'm probably the one person who can't do it. Although I'd love to, to change that, is because um, you know I'm I'm considered biased. Uh, you know I have safety apparel, and although we do research and we write white papers on our significant uh, new apparel uh, and have it peer reviewed or uh, vetted by um, outside academics, um, uh, you know I'm I'm biased. So what I'd really like to see is is more data, more studies, and a more outcomes based approach to uh, to protection.
0: Right. Okay. that's that's interesting. Now, another another question, too, is I I saw in the um, in the in the uh, episode two there mentioned that the studies have shown that uh, one study shows that 45 percent fewer collarbones are broken when wearing a neck brace. And I feel like the collarbone issue is a reason that a lot of riders are avoiding the neck brace. Like, have you done questionnaires like why people have decided not to wear them? Like, is that one of the factors or is it what? What do you think on that?
1: Yeah, so so it's a topical issue, Um, and and we we always thought, I mean, we have a a, a dummy that we routinely test on in the the lab here in Cape Town, and it's got instrumented uh, collarbones and instrumented ribs, Um, and so we can see uh, the results. Um, It's a topical issue, and I think, unfortunately, you know, once somebody has said something bad about uh, your product, or gone out on a forum and said, well, you know, neck braces break collarbones. It almost becomes uh, it almost becomes reality thereafter. I mean, people really do believe it. Uh, and then people say, well, you know, it, the neck brace saved my neck. I broke my collarbone. You know, I, I guess it's a small price to pay for having saved my neck. Uh, neck braces don't break collarbones. They save collarbones. And there's there's uh, you know hard empirical evidence now to prove that they save neck uh, collarbone injuries by wearing a neck brace. Um, uh, but unfortunately, there are people who are still ill-informed who go onto forums. I try not to go into forums because my blood pressure goes up with uninformed uh, comments. Um, and make a comment, and people just get all riled up about it. So um, I really think that when, you know, if, if you're going to make a comment, one should should really understand uh, the facts behind it. So as we know, you can break your collarbone in three ways. You can fall in an outstretched arm. And essentially, the collarbone is the tripod in the shoulder that stabilizes the shoulder joint. And it's, it's, uh, it's in fact, a really good thing that the collarbone breaks because if uh, you had to fracture your humerus or your humeral head, your actual shoulder shoulder joint, the recovery would be much longer. Uh, and the mobility uh, after the fact would be way higher. So your quality of life would be less uh, if you broke your shoulder rather than uh, than your, your, your collarbone. The second way you broke your collarbone is fall directly on your shoulder. And the third way is when your helmet rim strikes your collarbone and causes a fracture. Now, typically, the first two will cause a collarbone fracture in the upward direction, and a helmet rim strike will cause a fracture in the downwards direction. Not always, but that's quite common so if you have a neck brace in place over your clavicle and ours is a collarbone relief area when the helmet rim strikes the collarbone well it can't get to the collarbone it strikes the neck brace uh the 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 collarbone is shielded um and you don't in fact have a collarbone injury um and we always knew that there would be a reduction in collarbone injuries with the neck brace we were quite surprised by just the quantum that in fact we thought the first two types were were more common, um, and the third type was less common. And in fact, if you you know, it's it's a very high percentage. Um, but there's a good uh, reason for it, um, and, and that in that is that the the helmet drum strikes are being shielded uh, by the brace uh, and uh, and not not impact the collarbone. So, um, a really interesting study, and uh, unfortunately, even even though that's been published and we've been speaking about it for a while, uh, you know, if people are convinced uh, sometimes they can't be unconvinced.
0: Right. It's for that uh, episode two really, really does the whole three breaks uh, that you just went over there in pretty good detail. So it's, it was pretty eye-opening for me to see kind of the difference in, in the types of uh, collarbone breaks. And it's what I mean, this is motocross for goodness sake. I mean, collarbone breaks have been the number one injury since, since the start of the sport. So I mean, Someone falls on a collarbone, like you say, on their side, on their shoulder. I mean, that breaks your collarbone, and they're wearing a neck brace, and they're thinking that's what co- it's. Well, it's not. It's quite clearly, quite clearly stated in that in the what you just said there too. So I just find that uh, that interesting. That's that that would be.
1: Uh, I mean, I, I I've broken before I invented the neck brace. I broke two collarbones, <laughs> and uh, and I mean, I think just about any anybody who's uh, who's ridden. Um, uh, at at a fairly high level, and and uh, uh, you know, and, and been involved in the sport for a while, there's a very good chance of breaking your collarbone because, as you say, it's one of the most commonly fractured bones in your body.
0: Right, for sure, for sure.
1: Which of course means that when you're wearing a neck brace, you're still going to break a collarbone.
0: Exactly. Just just perhaps not with the uh, helmet strike. Yes, exactly.
1: Just not as many, but you're still going to break your collarbone. Nature of the game. You know, the other interesting. Um, question to always ask somebody who says and who's convinced that the the neck brace broke the collarbone you say well which side did you fall yeah Say the left side for example well which collarbone did you break well my left collarbone well it couldn't have been the brace because if the helmet rim struck the collarbone uh, or the brace impacted the collarbone or was pushed into the collarbone it would have been on the right hand side because the helmet would have left hand impacted gone in the opposite direction Uh, so that often puts pay to the argument
0: Right. Again, watch that episode two of the Liat, uh, the heritage uh, series there. It's pretty, uh, pretty clearly uh, shows that it was kind of, like I said, it was kind of an eye opener. That's kind of, Oh yeah. Okay. That makes, that makes good sense. All right. Well, I'm geez, Chris, I could keep you here all day, but uh, I've, I'm going to turn my page here and see what else I, uh, I've got here on my things. I don't want to miss anything, but uh, again, I don't want to keep you here all day. I appreciate you taking the time here with this. It's just a uh, kind of fascinating stuff. I find, I think. And um, so what, um, I always like the story about, um, you know, Oakley, for example. They started out with motocross grips, but people couldn't see the Oakley symbol, so they started Goggle Company so people could read Oakley. Now, what, at what point uh, did you guys decide you wanted to? I mean, you could you could probably, you could argue you could make a great living off just doing neck braces, perhaps. But at what point, you know, you now you're into gear, you kind of, uh, now you're covering the entire... You run the whole gamut here. What point and how big a decision was that to actually expand?
1: Well, I think it was a natural progression. Um, when I when I uh, developed the neck brace, um, I simultaneously looked at a lot of other products or body areas or injury types, and I had a list of things that I wanted to accomplish, like anti rotation in the brain, like um, our, our uh, knee braces without hinges on the inside, so that you can grip the the. Uh, the motorcycle, uh, like boots where there's energy escape initially. Uh, I mean, when we developed the, uh, our boot, we just chopped out the middle of the boot, uh, put it on a, a, a landmine test device, which really accelerated the lower limb upwards, um, and looked at all the other manufacturers' boots and ours, which we'd chopped out the business end of the boot. You know, everybody believed the boot should be stiff, and all of a sudden the forces were lower. The forces are low. The tibia, the fibia, the tibial plateau, the knee forces were low, and and so you know I have an inquiring mind, and and this has led to other products. So I think it was a a, a natural progression. But uh, you know, additionally, if you if you're one one product company, uh, and you have competition, of course we allow a, a lot of the competition to exist in the market with us. Uh, I think it's good not to have a monopoly. Um, but if you a single product com- company, um, you know there's not a lot of risk mitigation for the company in in, in longevity there. Um, so with the natural progression,
0: oh,
1: no, did um, do? Was uh, you know moving into into other non-innovative products, but where we could just we thought we could make a good offering and and, and get the name out there, and I think. What, is, what has transpired for us in, in the last six months, really, is uh, is a big shift. It's uh, slightly over six months. We have we are now officially a head-to-toe company in both uh, mountain bike and uh, off-road motorcycling. Um, and uh, what we've discovered recently, um, I'm very proud of my team and very proud of our designers, is that we, we're actually a cool brand now, whereas before we were very tech-focused and a very serious brand and trying to prevent injuries, but we've become a cool brand, and people are actually trying to find our products because they want to wear them, not because they feel they need to wear them. So it's um, the company has really gone through a metamorphosis, um, and it's an exciting time to be at Lea.
0: Yeah, for sure. I know when I wore the stuff last year at a local track here at Gopher Dunes, as I was sitting and waiting to go onto the track, I had numerous people come up and asking me about it and where can you get it and all that kind of stuff. So it's pretty cool. And you mentioned the uh, the knee braces. That cut out on the inside, man, what a, what a great idea that is. Those are the knee braces I got from uh, from Liat and Zoe out there. And, uh, boy, that's, you really can grip the bike. That's a what a that's a pretty cool advancement.
1: And quite interesting enough, having um, a virtual pivot point in, in the same place that the knee. A knee is not just a hinge joint. It's a complex joint. It rotates as it hinges. Um, and actually, by using two joints on the outside, we can better by mechanically mirror the way the knee brace and the knee interact um, than a lot of uh, the predated uh, double-sided uh, hinged knee braces. So it's a fascinating um, subject, and, you know, you've, you've really just got to have, uh, have a look at injuries and have an inquiring mind. Uh, you know, one silly example, um, you know, it's not, it's not a big product for us, but it's just a really interesting product uh, from my perspective is a lot of riders dislocate their shoulders during a season, um, but if they're going to have uh, a shoulder operation typically a bank cart lesion repair they are going to be out of um, out of competitive uh, racing for a, for a number of events uh, so we developed a, a, a shoulder brace um, that does the opposite of every single other shoulder brace out there and uh, typically 90% of uh, of um, shoulder injuries um, uh, you are, uh, you're injuring your shoulder where you pull the, the anterior lower rim off, off, uh, off the shoulder cup. And what a lot of braces, uh, shoulder rehabilitation braces are doing is they pull your shoulder in and down. Um, and in fact, that's how you dislocate your, your shoulder. Uh, so we lifted it up and externally rotated it. And all of a sudden you lose this, this feeding of an imminent re-dislocation because people re-dislocate their shoulders more than 100% in the first year after their first dislocation. Um, and that's just sort of an example of looking at what's in the industry, what people are doing, and, and saying, you know, is that really the best solution? If I was to answer this problem, how would I answer it?
0: Interesting. Hey, if if you were to hit a motocross track, how much protective gear would you would you have everything that you guys put on? Or is it, uh, what, would you, <laughs> what would you hit the track with? Gosh,
1: if I was to hit the track, I, I'd... I'd <laughs> Definitely wish to have everything on.
0: (laughs) Yeah. No,
1: I think at uh, my skill level at this age, uh, I probably um, um, want to to have as much protection as possible.
0: (laughs) Right. And I think it's also funny. I mean, you see people out there, you're basically wearing just a jersey. You're wearing a shirt. (laughs) And it's funny. And I remember back in my day racing, you know, I, I wore everything that I could get my hands on. And if people thought you were soft, I'm not soft. If I crash, I don't want to miss a race. Like, I used to love racing so much. I didn't find it as a weakness. It's, no, I just never want to miss a race.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's not good for you. It's not good for your family. It's not good for your earning potential. It's not good for your sponsors. not good for winning a race. not good for winning a season. It's not good for anything.
0: Yeah, just, if, if it's available. I, I mean, that's, that's my argument with the whole thing is, I mean, yeah, it's, yeah. Hey, I, one question about the actual design on on the brace. I see we've you, now gone to the uh, the split in the back on the uh, both side, either side of the spine. Can you talk about that? Because I mean, uh, I think historically when people looked at a brace, that that was a uh, again it might just be perception, but that was always a question.
1: Well, you know, the, uh, the thoracic membrane brace happens to end at uh, T seven. Which is also the most commonly um, injured region of the spine, and the spine is typically injured when you land on your head. And if you take a curved stick and you squash it on both ends, it will snap in the middle, and that's essentially crudely how you break your your back. So people saw the thoracic member of the of the neck brace, and the, the reason, the whole reason the thoracic member is there, is to position the top platform in a way that it can't rotate out of the way during an accident, unless the impact force is large enough, in which case it fractures. So the fact that uh, people have this perception that the thoracic member is uh, on first glass understandable, but when you understand how neck injuries uh, and back injuries occur, you'll understand that the the thoracic member is not something that induces injuries. So the way the, the neck brace, even the first one, was designed is that there was a raised padding section on either side of the thoracic member because the, the brace is designed to apply force to your paraspinal muscles, the group of muscles that run vertically up and down your spine. But what we found over time is that as you are rotating your upper body, uh, you can imagine a, a boxer moving, uh, punching in and out, um, as you're rotating your upper torso, um, you have a, a fair amount of rotation in your in your um, uh, mid-torso, and and that's why we created two almost distinct, joined at the top, um, elements to the thoracic member so that they can can move independently of one another, and it just makes the brace more comfortable. It has absolutely nothing to do with effectiveness, the level at which it fractures. It performs the same way in the lab as as the old-style thoracic does. It's just more comfortable to wear.
0: Okay, interesting. Yeah, it's just uh, something I thought of there as we were, as we were talking. But uh, all right, hey, we we are closing in on an hour here, and again, I don't want to take up all, any any more of your day there. Um, but uh, what one kind of maybe a final question? Um, what uh, what do you have kind of in the in the hopper right now? What are you guys working on? What's kind of what's kind of getting you excited these days for uh, something coming up?
1: You know we have a big team here at Liat and and uh, a lot of specialists in in specialist fields, so whether it's you know clothing or footwear or uh, you know apparel, uh, neck protection. um, I'm lucky enough to be able to concentrate on blue sky innovation still. um and so we we're always asking the question, what could we do differently? Uh, there's a problem. how can we we solve it. So, Excitingly, I think uh, you'll see natural progression in LiET in terms of its innovation, but you'll also see some blue sky thinking. And uh, it, it does take a while to get blue sky thinking into a into a real product, but it's really exciting. And uh, there's uh, lots of reasons to get out of bed in the morning. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, I'm doing um, I'm currently doing a PhD on brain injuries, um, specific to our sport, and um, and that's also uh, you know very stimulating. So. Um, it's just an interesting company to work at and an interesting place to be.
0: Okay, interesting. Yeah, there's. I mean, so many more questions I could have. For you. I mean, we didn't even talk really about the helmets and I mean, uh, all the other kind of stuff like the full-on uh, roost protection, shoulder pads, chest, and everything. That fancy, the fancy gear. I've got it. The I've got one of those. And by the way, I think you just quoted uh, Vanilla Ice there when you said, "If you've got a problem, <laughs> you'll all solve it." I think you just quoted him by accident.
1: <laughs> it was. It wasn't intentional. <laughs> <laughs> so but we'll have to we'll have to circle back at some time uh, some other time, Billy. If you've got lots more questions. <laughs>